Uh, thanks for reading, uh, Adrian. And if we haven't met, uh, my name is Mitch Spence. I'm one of the elders here at Living Hope Church. And uh, let me add my welcome to Joram. It's great to have you uh, with us this afternoon. We continue our series in John's Gospel, and particularly the, these last few chapters in John's Gospel. We are almost at the end of John's Gospel, chapter 20 and uh, 21 uh, to go. And so let me pray for us as we come to God's Word uh, this afternoon. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as always, we come humbly and yet expectant to hear you speak to us through your word and by your spirit. We thank you for your word, which is sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts deeper than the point of bone and marrow to the point of soul, to the point of our souls, are shaping us, fashioning us into who we be. We pray, Father, that in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you are shaping and fashioning us into his likeness for your glory. And so would we uh, come to your words today with open ears and open hearts, open minds and open eyes to see, to hear, to know you more and to find life in Jesus' name. And so in his, and so in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. There is this uh, <coughs> kind of cult comedy TV show uh, out at the moment. Uh, maybe you know it. It's called Ted Lasso. And it's about an American NFL coach who gets hired by an English Premier League club to manage a soccer team. And as you can imagine, uh, NFL, American football, is nothing like English uh, football, but uh, American culture is nothing like English culture. And so the the whole kind of premise of the series is built on this, this tension, I suppose, in some sense. Now, don't get me wrong. The language uh, in this uh, series is uh, atrocious. The morals are liberal at best. And so I am not suggesting that we should all go out and watch uh, this series. Let's be clear on that. However, my guess is a bunch of you have already watched it. And in the show, in the show, this Premier League uh, club, they, um, they buy a, a South American striker. Super talented striker, quintessentially South American. He has the, the long, flowing black hair. He has the olive skin. He has that classic kind of Spanish uh, lisp, if you uh, like, right? And, and um, he has this bubbly character. He, he kind of bounces off walls. In fact, in, in one of the episodes, he, he mentions this. He says that he doesn't drink coffee because his mother said that when he was born, he was born caffeinated. Okay, and so you get the kind of personality that this person is. His name is Danny Rojas. Okay, he's optimistic, even annoyingly optimistic. And throughout the series, he's kind of constantly running around. He's, he's bouncing off uh, walls. He's, he's running through the, the corridors, the, the changing rooms, the stadium. And, and his mantra in life is, football is life. Football is life. And no doubt for uh, many millions of people around the world, football is life. What gives them meaning and a purpose. Maybe for many of us here, and our obsession with the beautiful game. Maybe football is life. Although in Zimbabwe it's less that football than life and more that I think Arsenal is life. Or <laughs> Manchester United is life. Or maybe Manchester United is more like death at the moment, I'm not sure. But, but that is the, 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 the mantra, right? And of course we, we joke. But the question I want to ask us this afternoon is this. What is life for you? What is life for you? 
What gives you meaning in the present and hope for the future? I was listening to a talk this week by a, a guy speaking. He's a, a kind of famous Scottish theologian. And he said that when he used to interview young kind of theological graduates who, who were wanting to become ordained pastors within the, the set of churches that he worked, he used to ask them this one question. He used to ask them, what do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? And it's a great question, isn't it? It's a great diagnostic tool, I think. For revealing what we truly love. For revealing where we think life is found. What is life for you? What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? Maybe like so many Zimbabweans, education is life. Not studying, not exams, that's more like death, right? But qualifications, those little letters after your name, they are life. Become, BSc, MA, MBA, PhD. Maybe, maybe family is life. It's not only that, that the whole of your life revolves around your family and only your family, but everything you do and dream about, and don't dream about for that matter, the kind of house or suburb that you must live in, the kind of schools that your children must go to, the kinds of friends you pursue, the opportunities that your children must have. Maybe family is life. Maybe the eyes of your fiancé are life. Romance is life. Congrats to the uh, engaged couple and the couple just to be married. Praise God, that is a wonderful thing. And I can imagine that for you guys right now, there is a sense of vitality and energy and meaning for today and hope for tomorrow found in the eyes of each other. Maybe romance is life. Maybe career is life. Status. Legacy. Leaving a a mark in this world. Maybe shiny new things are life to you. A growing following on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, or who cares. Something like that is life for you. Of course, I've been kind of mulling this over the, uh, the last couple of weeks, and as, I, as I've stopped to pause and think about who we are as a people and where we find our identity as a nation, I think for so many of us Zimbabweans, uh, what we're living for, to me at least, it appears that so many of us, if not all of us, winning is life. Succeeding is life. And almost at any cost, there is no sacrifice, I think, that is too great, no relationship that is too precious. Why? Because for us, winning is life. And I'm not talking about waking up and thinking that we're going to conquer the world, no. But to win today. If we win today and we we, we win tomorrow, if we win more than we lose, then, then we'll make it. And so what are the meetings, the conversations, the arguments that I must win today? What are the opportunities, the deals I must make today and take advantage of today? Whose favor and approval must I win today? And what's it going to take to do that? What is life for you? What do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? Well, as you know, John's gospel is a gospel that is all about life. Right at the very beginning in the opening chapter, which we came across about two and a half years ago, so I don't expect you to remember it, 
But, but speaking of Jesus, John says this in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of man. John opens his gospel by saying this gospel is all about life, and it is found in Jesus. He wants us to grasp that this profound reality, that, that all the way back in the, the very beginning of creation, before there was anything else but God, there was life. And it was in the pre-incarnate Son, who was with God and who was God. He is the source of all life. He is the only life, the giver of life. He is life itself. Jesus, says John, is life. But also, I think as many of you now know, right at the end of this gospel, John says the whole reason that he's writing is that you may have life. John 20, 30, 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so as far as John is concerned, Jesus is life. Believing in him is life. And the irony of the gospel is that it is in his death that Jesus offers us life. But it's actually uh, far more vivid than in our passage this afternoon. Because I think that John really wants us to see that on the cross there is a fountain of life flowing out from the Lamb. That on the cross there is a fountain of life flowing out from the Lamb. That the blood of the Lamb that as it streams out from his side so a fountain of blood and water flows mingled down that in his death Jesus offers us life. And that offer of life is for all of us, for each one of us here this afternoon. The offer is to come and bathe, come and wash in this life-giving fountain that flows from the Lamb on the cross. Come and believe in Jesus. Come and keep believing in Jesus and find life in his name, real life, true life, eternal life. And so to keep us kind of all on track this afternoon, and me included, uh, we're going to follow, I suppose, this, this offer of life as we go. It's uh, out there on, on the left next to me. Um, come bathe in the fountain of blood that flows from the Lamb, verses 31 to 37. And find courage to step out of the darkness, verses 38 to 42. And the big implication, the big implication for us this afternoon, this is life. This is life. Our passage uh, opens, doesn't it, by reminding us that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, verse 31. But this is not any uh, ordinary Sabbath. If you jump back to verse 14, this is the Sabbath in the week of the Passover. And the Passover was that celebration which went all the way back to Exodus, didn't it? The great pilgrim festival for which uh, the people of Israel uh, would once a year gather, every year. The whole nation would would descend on Jerusalem and gather en masse. Numbers in the city would swell to bursting point. Some commentators say that the uh, the population in the city grew from about uh, 300,000 people to 1.8 million over those uh, few days, six times the size uh, it normally is. Think of it a little bit like when an incredibly uh, large political party decides to hold their conference in a small rural town, and everyone descends on that town for that weekend. And anyone who is anyone is there. Jarprasia and Gemma, they are there, right? Nick Mangwana is there tweeting away. 
Makandiwa and Magaya, of course, they are both there. Even the gold mafia, they are all there. Everyone who is anyone is there. And the whole point is that the whole nation is gathered around to celebrate. They are to celebrate God's great rescue of his people from slavery, from slavery under Egypt. And they're meant to be celebrating the death of an innocent lamb, and yet this year, they're all celebrating the death of an innocent man. This is a time of great historical significance for the people of uh, Israel. That moment each year when they, they look back to the day that their oppressors were crushed and their freedom was won. But not by their own doing, not by their own strength. No, they were weak, they were feeble, they had no hope of, of bringing about any kind of change, no hope of an uprising. But Yahweh, the Lord their God, who crushed their Egyptian oppressors. And absolutely central to that rescue, all the way back in Exodus, absolutely central was the death of an innocent lamb. Do you remember? At the end of the plagues, one final act of judgment on God's enemy that came in the form of an angel of death who passed throughout the whole land. But wherever the death of an innocent lamb had taken place, the angel of death would pass over that house. They would be spared from the judgment of God. And so the Passover, this time that they are meant to be gathered together and celebrating, it's a time of religious reflection. It's, It's a time of joyous celebration. And all, all on the death of this innocent lamb that saved them from the judgment of God and spared them from death. And it is in this context that verses 31 to 37 then play out. Jewish law insisted that anyone who was hanged on a cross shouldn't be left there overnight. And so to speed up the process, well, uh, verse 31, the Jews asked that the legs of those who had been crucified and and those with Jesus uh, be broken. But when they come to Jesus, verse 33, there was no need to break his legs. Why? Because they find that he is already dead. One soldier, however, he decides, it's okay, I'll, I'll shove a spear in his side just to make absolutely sure. And out pours a fountain of blood mixed with water. Verse 34. I'm not a medical expert. I've done a little bit of reading in this area, some commentaries, and it seems that the medical experts agree. Maybe you can catch up with Sarah afterwards. She might have some insight on this. But, but where the chest has been severely kind of injured, up to two liters, they reckon, of something called, I think it's called hemorrhagic fluid, could have filled his chest cavity, which then separated the clearer kind of serum at the top and the deeper red layer at the bottom, and when punctured by a spear, then both blood and water pour out. Two liters, I thought of bringing a two-liter milk bottle and just pouring it out here in front of us to see how much blood and water actually would come out at that point. It's quite a lot when you think about it. Whatever the actual case, medically speaking, the point here, I think, is, is simple and clear. Jesus, Jesus was dead. It reminds me of that Trevor Noah skits. He was dead, 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 dead. He was dead. That's the whole point, right? The word became flesh, now lay dead on a cross. And I don't think there's, there's any getting out of this. You see, one of the conspiracy theories that tends to do the rounds every so often and, and gains a bit of prominence is that um, when it comes to the resurrection, Jesus didn't actually die. 
That's why he rose from the dead. They all thought he died, but he didn't. But John doesn't leave that door open to us. The Roman guards, they are experts in killing, and they know that Jesus is dead, and even so, they put a spear in his side. John, speaking of himself in verse 35, stresses that he saw with his own eyes the blood and water pouring out of his sides. And then there's Joseph and Nicodemus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who take his body down from the cross and lay it in a, in a tomb. They witnessed the crucifixion. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an event that plays out in the public sphere. Jesus dies on a cross for all the world to see. Jesus was dead. And in his death, Jesus draws out, I mean, John draws out two incredibly significant kind of lines of Old Testament fulfillment. And they are really, I think, the thrust of our passage this afternoon. So let me read them from verse 36. He says, For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. You see, in the context of the Passover week, John really, really, really wants us to see that Jesus is God's perfect Passover lamb, without blemish and without broken bones. And so John recalls for us that Exodus chapter 12 and Numbers chapter 9, they both specify that no bone of the Passover lamb shall be broken. Each year when you celebrate the Passover, no bone of the Passover lamb shall be broken. And John sees all that's kind of happening, all that's playing out in the death of Jesus, and he makes the very obvious connection, doesn't he? Jesus is this Passover lamb. He had no bones broken, no bones were broken there. And it's no coincidence that as the blood of Jesus streams out like a fountain from his side, there is literally a fountain of lamb's blood flowing through the streets of Jerusalem. You see, in Jerusalem, lambs had to be slaughtered up at the temple, which was set up on a hill. And one commentator conservatively, I think, estimates that on that day, 200,000 lambs were slaughtered. Assuming a 12-hour working day, that means 280 lambs were slaughtered each minute, every minute, the entire day. I'm not a mathematician, but that's a lot of lamb's blood. And they didn't have modern sewage systems. It flows through the streets, and it flows down from the temple, down the hill, through the streets of Jerusalem. Blood that was first poured out all those years ago in the Exodus. Blood poured out in their place, in the place of their firstborn sons. Blood that meant God's judgments would not descend on them, but would pass over their households. And so just as there is a fountain of blood flowing down from the temple through the streets, John wants us to see that there is a fountain of blood flowing out from this Passover lamb, the source of both the death of a Passover lamb. Do you see the vivid imagery? You're witnessing the blood come out of a lamb, and you're watching the blood flow through the streets from the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. He is the Lamb of God who causes the judgment of God to pass over, to pass over all who have bathed in that blood. John kind of reinterprets the whole of the the Passover story. He he reorients all of its symbolism to to point directly, directly to to the death of Jesus on the cross. 
He says this is at the very center of everything that we, we, we celebrate each year. His, His is the blood that spares us death and gives us life. And I personally think that there is vivid symbolism here in the fact that what pours out from Jesus' side is both death and uh, both blood and water. Blood symbolizing that a death has taken place. Water symbolizing the offer of life. There is in the blood of Jesus life. Why? Because he is the source of all life. And to further strengthen this offer of, of life, in verse 37, John alerts us to another fulfillment, this time in Zechariah 12, verse 10. And so by, by further emphasizing this, inf- uh, this kind of incident with the spear, John takes us to a, a promise of God that there was a day coming when the people of Israel would mourn the death of one like a Messiah, one like Jesus, if you want to say that. But, but listen to the words of, our, of Zechariah 13:1, which come just, just, just moments after that, okay? Zechariah 13, verse 1, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to what? To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There will be a fountain on that day opened up to clean them, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The offer to us this afternoon is come and bathe in the fountain of blood that flows from the Lamb and you will find life. This is life. Jesus is life. Well, verses 38 to 42, they they obviously kind of recount what happens next in the sense that they move the story on, don't they? And they they lay the foundation for the resurrection that's coming in chapter 20. Joseph and and Nicodemus, they they take Jesus' body down from the cross, they prepare it for burial, and then they, they put it in an empty tomb. Those are the kind of bare facts of verses 38 to 42. But did you notice that this little episode gives us more than just the bare facts? Did you notice the, the really intriguing bits of detail that John gives us on, on, on both Joseph and Nicodemus? Verse 38. After these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Joseph was a closet follower of Jesus, a coward who, in the face of fear, kept his allegiance to Jesus hidden. He lacked the courage to side with Jesus whilst he was alive. But now, after the death of Jesus, he somehow finds courage, in the face of all that fear, to step out of the shadows and go to Pilate himself and ask for the body to show Jesus honor. Then there's Nicodemus, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. We first met Nicodemus all the way back in chapter 3. He is a Pharisee himself, and he too now finds courage, doesn't he? Courage to step out of the darkness and honor Jesus in the lights. We won't get into it, but the weight and the cost of the spices that he brings is extravagant. Fit for a king. So here is one who is a Pharisee who approaches Jesus by night, either for fear or it's a symbolism that he is one who is still in the darkness. And yet at the end of John's Gospel, after Jesus has died, 
John tells us that he comes, he comes out of the darkness. He comes in the daylight. He comes to bury Jesus. He comes to honor him. He comes to, to prepare him for his burial. And back in chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It's interesting, isn't it? That as Jesus is is lifted up on a cross, and it would have been a lot higher than this cross uh, here to my right, but as Jesus is lifted up on a cross, and with a fountain of life pouring out of his side, John chooses to highlight these two men who have been walking in darkness, but all of a sudden are drawn out, drawn to Jesus, and find courage to step into the light. And I want to suggest to us this afternoon that this is life. This is life. Turning to Jesus is life. Coming to Jesus is life. Trusting in Jesus is life. Believing in Jesus is life. Football is not life. Career, status, legacy, they're all a poor man's version of life. Winning certainly is not life. More often it's death. It leaves us enslaved and ensnared and entangled in a complex web of deceit and pride and hidden shame and broken relationships. I think we need to call this one out in our nation, don't we? Education is not life. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that education is not valuable, but if I had a dollar, just one dollar, for each thing I've faced in life that education has utterly failed to prepare me for, I'd be a rich man. Education is not life. Family, loved ones, good to cherish, good to love, good to care for, but they aren't life either. And they can't offer it to you. As much as you think that you can find it in them, they are not life. And the sad reality, I think, that most of us fail to grasp is that to expect of your, life, of your wife or your husband, your child, your family, that in them you will find life, well, more often than not, you're going to suffocate them because they cannot live up to that expectation. If you think that you will find life in your husband or wife, in your child, in your family, and you expect that from them, You will suffocate them because they cannot give it to you. But in Jesus, in Jesus' life, in Jesus you you get to step out of the darkness, out of the the shame, out of the weight of guilt and sin, out out of the the never-ending pursuit of that little slice of heaven on earth that we all know and, and dream of and want in life. We get to step out of the the exhausting and I think um, often enslaving pursuit of of riches and and wealth and status and career and and into the light. Into the one who says, I've given it to you all. I've given you life in my name, both now and in the world to come. This is eternal life. This is freedom. Come and bathe in my blood. I have done it all. I have paid the price that you could not pay to bring you to the Father, to be reconciled to your Father in heaven. And so does that mean that life is going to become easy for us? Not necessarily, no. We live in the same broken world. We face the same realities that most other people face. 
But this is what truly living is. Trusting in Jesus. Knowing that our sins have been forgiven. Looking to the cross and seeing the fountain of blood pour out and saying, my, my sin is paid for. And looking ahead to his return and being able to say, there is a day coming. There is a day coming when he will return for his own. Hope. Meaning for today. Hope for tomorrow. This is life. Come to Jesus. Come and bathe in the blood of the cross. Come and bathe in the blood of the Lamb. Believe in Jesus. Continue believing in him. This is life. Let me pray for us as we close. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that in his death, in his death we have life. In his blood we have forgiveness. Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit at work within us according to your word, that you would draw all of us, that you would compel all of us to come to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to believe in him and to find life in his name. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen.